Natalie Sen. Welcome to another edition of Two Sober Chicks. This is our new speaker series podcast edition, and this is number two, January 1st, 2023. Please welcome to the podcast another great speaker from Alcoholics Anonymous, Doris D. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Um, Doris D. and Alcoholics, so grateful to be here this morning. It is funny because Lisa and I talked about who was going to speak on the first and the eighth. And uh, Lisa said, well, I'll speak on the first because of so-and-so. And I said, okay, I'll speak on the eighth. Well, guess what? Lisa's speaking on the eighth and I'll speak this morning on the first. It's amazing because I've been thinking about uh, lately what I would say. Um, and I had no idea that I would have to say it this early. Uh, but God is good, you know, and there's a reason for everything. I don't think anything happens coincidentally. Um, and that brings me to my first point. You know, I was a 60s baby uh, that was born uh, out of wedlock to a 16-year-old who lived in the North, who wanted to be a nurse and came down South to have a baby so that no one would know. That's all I know about my beginnings. I don't know who she was. I don't know who my father is. And uh, I've never met her. And uh, I stayed in a birth home, a Salvation Army birth home for the first 18 months of my life. Uh, I was, according to my parents, the only African-American baby there. And I was adopted, according to my mother, because I was being mistreated in the birth home. Uh, she noticed that I was left crying while other babies were picked up. And she said she felt sorry for me. And she told my father, this is the one for us. Um, I guess she didn't have much of a choice because I was the only black baby there. And she was, my mother was very uh, prejudiced, very racist. Uh, I grew up in a home where I was not allowed to talk to anyone outside of my race. One of the worst beatings I ever got was when I was in the sixth grade, you know, I had this little boyfriend. Well, he was Native American. And my mother caught me talking to him. And that was one of the most traumatic points of my life. So I grew up very sheltered because I was locked in a room. Um, I had to go to school, come back and stay in my room and the doors were locked. I was not allowed to eat with my parents. I was not allowed to play with other kids. Mine was a very solitary life. However, there was everything that any kid could want in that room. I mean, I had a TV when most people didn't have a color TV. I had one in my room. I had a telephone in my room. Um, the room, they let me paint it any color I wanted. I was depressed all the time, so I painted it dark blue. Um, and um, stayed in that prison. I stayed in that prison uh, until I was 15 and I couldn't take it anymore. I uh, would go to summer school to get away from my parents. Um, and that afforded me to be ahead in my grades. But let me back up a bit because when I was five or six, my parents were kind of socialites. And they'd had, they, they would throw these wild parties in the backyard. 
they thought that it would be fun to let the six-year-old mix the drinks because they always came out too strong. And of course, alcoholics, what do they want? A strong drink. And so I started mixing drinks at the age of six. Well, they would say it's too strong and then I'd taste it. So I started tasting alcohol uh, from six. And by the time I was 12, I was stealing it from my father. Um, my father had, had built on this part of the house and he had this little room down in the basement. He had kept his little socks all neat in this box, but under it was a bottle of alcohol. Um, alcohol ran deep in my family. My grandmother ran what was called a shot house. If, if uh, some of y'all are from the South, you know what a shot house is. It's an after hour spot where you go buy shots of alcohol and uh, you sit and, and talk with other people. So I grew up in the shot house. I grew up around alcohol. And by the time I was 12, I was a drunk. I was an all in out drunk. Um, but school, man, school drove me because I saw it as a ticket out of here. Um, I, I just wanted to get away from here. So at 15, I remember um, my mother, um, my mother, they never came to any of the things that I did for school, but um, I ended up getting, um, I got scouted by a talent scout basically for an all girls Episcopalian school, not far from here. And they invited me to come there. They had two other black students. And I talk about race a lot because I live in the South. So I want you to get the gist of, you know, my frame of reference. And um, I went to the interview and my mother and my father went with me. And I was embarrassed. It's no lie. I was embarrassed um, by my parents. And um, as we were having the interview, he gave my mother the price of the tuition. My mother absolutely said no. And then he said, but we want to give her a scholarship. Man, I saw my ticket out. There it was. I get to go away to school at 15 and never come back. That was my plan. And my mother sat there very stoically and said, she does not need a fancy education to be able to work in white folks' kitchen. I died, like, like literally died, like was so embarrassed. I wanted to get under the chair. And then I started thinking, wow, that's what she thinks about me. That's how she thinks I'm going to turn out, you know? Um, and uh, I quit school the next day. I was like, you don't believe in me? I'm getting out of here. And folks, what that was, was I'll fix you, I'll hurt me. I did a lot of that in my life. Getting mad with people, see? Getting mad with people and then hurting myself behind it. So I left to sell magazines all across the nation, door to door. And I kept drinking. I was away from my mother. I was away from home. I had dropped out of my first love, which was school. And it was so crazy because that took me down toward paths. But I'm going to fast forward because you know, I was raised in the church, like even through all the beatings. I got one of my worst beatings when I asked my mom why she acted the way she did in church. 
and she threw me to the floor. She had her high heel shoes on and she just started stomping me in my back. I still have the marks. I got a tattoo over it, but I still have the marks, you know? And uh, I just kept on drinking. I kept on drinking. While I was out there, I got introduced to other things. And then one of my roommates got killed down in Camp Lejeune. Uh, she went and knocked on the wrong door and she was killed by a Marine. I left the crew and I didn't know what to do, but I knew I wasn't coming back here to my mom. So I ran to my aunt and uncle. They housed me for a little bit. Then I got a room and then I started traveling door to door again. I finally settled down when I got pregnant. Yep, I got pregnant. And um, I moved back to North Carolina and my mother insisted that I move in with her. Oh Lord, that was crazy. I moved in with her and then after a year I had moved out. My mother was driving me crazy and I was a stomp running drunk, you know? Um, then I guess the kids got older and my son went to church. I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina. My son went to church and he came home and he said, mom, we're all gonna be Christians. We're all gonna be saved. And I was like, let me ship him off for the summer to his grandmother's house. He'll see what that's all about. I ain't having no parts of that crap. Nope, 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 and nope again. So I sent the kid off and um, this blue bus used to pick the kids up take them to what's called Super Saturday. And I got so, I was so, so hungry, so hungry for something other than the pain in my life. Because at that time I started doing the little white powder stuff, you know, that's that outside issue. Yeah, that'll kill you quick. Um, and all I wanted to do was that, I was an addict. And I saw that blue bus come by one day and I was, I was tattered. I mean, I had on these flip-flops. I, I hadn't bathed in I don't know when. But the bus came by and I got on it. I didn't know why. I didn't tell anybody I was gone. The kids were gone to their grandmothers. But I got on that bus. That bus took me to church. And I started going. You know, I knew about this higher power and everything. So I started going to church. And then one day. At this time now, I'm like 30 years old. One day, the preacher started talking about higher education as being the way out of poverty. So I didn't have any better sense than to go to the college, the university that was right around my house, and I started asking them about higher education. I told them that I had a GED. They said, well, we're going to test you. I tested, and suddenly I was a college student at 31. I was a college student with all the teeny boppers. And because I, um, you know, that was, that was important for me. And I had these two kids, but in the meantime, I had gotten married at 20 and I had married, um, I'll tell you what they called them, a crackhead. You know, this man did crack every day of his life and uh, put me and my children in very risky and dangerous situations. 
And one night as I was out gallivanting with my sorority mm -hmm. sisters who were what, 18, 19, um, he left my child alone in um, 20 degree weather and she was trying to put the heat on and she uh, turned the air conditioning on. And when I got back, my daughter's body temperature had dropped so low that we had to rush her to the hospital. And I said, you know, that's it for me. Not living with anybody with an addiction. Now, mind you, I'm drinking myself to death at that point. See, I didn't know that I had cancer. And I went on to school and um, there was a lump and I was diagnosed with cancer at 32 years of age. Um, and school just stopped. Once again, the thing that I love, the thing that I love. I drank my way through that bout of cancer um, and recovered. And I was happy um, I didn't get a chance to graduate with my class. However, um, they had a special graduation for me. That made me feel special, wanted, and needed. But my home life, my home life was horrible. I got my job at the bank, and I had really horrible credit. And I wasn't working out. Um, and my boss came to me, and she said, you know, you need to go into social services. You're a butterfly. You're a social butterfly. Get out of the banking industry, because you can't sit down to save your life. And we're going to fire you in about two weeks. Um, so why don't you look for another job and uh, you go ahead and uh, find something else to do. That hurt me. <clears throat> but I did find another job in social services. And um, I decided that I would run away from my husband. That would be the first of a million times that I would run away from him. Uh, sorry, y'all. I had to get rid of a bummer. Um, and so I, I ran away um, to Florida, of all places. I went down to Florida uh, for one weekend, and about two weeks later, I had a U-Haul headed that way. Quit my job at social services and got a job uh, being a child abuse investigator. My life changed. In Florida, they pay you nothing to be a child abuse investigator. Um, and uh, I had my kids. I'd taken my kids from everything they'd known and moved them down to Florida. I was drinking and drugging so heavily while trying to care for other people's children. And I thought I was good at it. And right before I got my licensure, a child died in my caseload. Um, I was drunk, I was high, and I was supposed to take a child from its parents, but it was a really weird situation. The child was over in Jacksonville. I'm in another county. The case should never have been assigned to me. So because I was drunk, I felt like this case should never have been assigned to me. I'm not doing it. It's Mother's Day. And I want to go home and get high. I want to drink. So I pushed the case to the side. I was going to get around to it, you know? Um, but before I got around to it, the child died from abuse 
The child's father punched him in the back of the head, caused a subdural hematoma. The child started bleeding out in its brain and was dead before I could think about it again. That, um, I carried that guilt around for a very long time. It took a power greater than myself, people, to help me to be able to forgive myself for that. I told myself that I caused that child's death. I did not. The father caused the child's death. I could have never made it. See, when I, when I did my fourth, I realized that I could have never made it from the county that I was in to Duval to do anything. Um, the child would have been dead by the time I got there. But because I was drunk, I hid the fact that I had the file. See, had I come to my boss, and told them what I told you, I probably could have kept my job. But I hid it. I hid the file. I planted it somewhere. I think I might have burned it. And then I lied about the fact that I actually had the file. Well, y'all know what happened. Y'all know what happened. I lost my job. And I just moved my kids to Florida. Man, went from, from North Carolina. And if you were a child abuse investigator, you know, you walked around like this, like you were something. And uh, I had to walk back into that office a week later and apply for food stamps and Medicaid for my children. Same people that I looked down on, I had to go to them and ask them for help. All I could do was drink. That's all I could do at that time was drink. Because what am I going to do with these kids, man? Like, I got no job. Everything is just falling apart. So I did the only thing that I knew to do. And, you know, my mom told me when tough, when times get tough, go church. I went to church. I hadn't been in church in so long. And I went there looking for God. And um, I did something I'd never done. I went to the altar and I prayed. And uh, Two weeks later, I had a job paying close to six figures with a bachelor's degree. So once again, this power came through for me and my foolishness. Like I was like, what? The people that wouldn't talk to me on the other job when I got fired, they came to me looking for a job because this job paid about $20,000 more than what they were paying at the child abuse place. But see, what happened was when I got that job, the boss quit and then I got his job. So now I'm making six figures after having nothing. I was still on food stamps. And um, I got that big job, you know, and I started working with kids and it became my life, but I was still a drunk. I was still a drunk. So I'm bound to mess that up, right? I was just doomed and determined to mess it up, not knowing that that's what I was doing. And I worked that job for about five or six years, moved to the national level that took me out of Florida and up into the DMV area, uh, DC, Virginia, and Maryland. And there I continued to drink. Um, I started doing things that I shouldn't have done, man. I started getting involved with 
a different kind of sexuality for me. Let me go and spell it out. Okay, so I became a lesbian for like 10 years because I felt like, I felt like all the men in the world were gonna do me like my husband. Now still running from him. Um, and the next 10 years, I dated nothing but women exclusively and was horrible, horrible to the women. I mean, I talk about pimping all over the world because I did a little bit of that, you know? That's part of my story. I'm not proud of it. Um, I put women into strip clubs and took a half of their money. Now, mind you, let me tell you, I was working for the United States Department of Defense while I was doing that. Okay, I was an independent contractor at that point. So now I'm making all this money and I decided to pimp all over the world, you know? Um, and this was lunacy. I held a government employee hostage in my home for three days. Because I was crazy. I was obsessed. And it was all due to the alcohol. It was all due to the alcohol. Why? Because I don't drink. I ain't trying to hold nobody hostage in my house for three days now. Company come and stay three days. I'm ready for them to go. But this was this is what the alcohol did to me. It made me absolutely crazy. And then when you couple it with all these other outside issues, it makes for a very crazy person. And I was toxic and crazy to everything I touch. Every, every, every relationship that went on during that time, I burnt every bridge. I cannot go back and talk to anybody from that time. And I know because I've had to make amends and those folks did not want to hear from me. So now I've got this career and then I got this side gig and now I'm traveling every other week to a different state. I've, there, there are not many states I've not been to. And what am I doing? I'm convincing women to come back to the DMV area to be strippers while I'm on my good government job. That's what I thought life was about. Well, um, after I did that, I couldn't handle my job anymore. It was just too many balls juggling up in the air. So of course, you know what I did? I destroyed that job. I destroyed it everywhere I would go. I wouldn't just leave. I'd just blow the whole scene up. It'd be chaos, confusion, and, and just mass ridiculousness whenever I left the scene. You could tell I had been there. I was like a bull in the China shop. Not called the China shop, say the bull is coming. Get ready, cause I'm coming. I was mean, I was aggressive. I walked around like a man for 10 years, 10 years. I dressed as a man. I spoke like a man. My voice went to like two or three octaves deeper. I was commanding and possessive and just a horrible, horrible person. I was scared and lonely 
and tired and broken. My heart hurt. I didn't trust anybody. I was using everybody for anything I could get from them. I was burning the candle at both ends. I was staying out all night long and then trying to get to a job, trying to get to the airplane, to the flight on time, running from gate to gate, but had to stop at the bar in the airport to drink first, missed my flights, spent my per diems. I was just crazy and I wanted to die. But I had been wanting to die since I was 12. That was my first suicide attempt. And by the time all of this started happening, I met a young woman and I'd fallen in love with her. She treated me like I was treating everybody else. She didn't have me on the pole, but she could have. That's how deeply I thought I loved this person. And they drug me through the mud, okay? They drug me through the mud and I tried to kill myself again. I ended up in a mental institution because you know, they tell us, you know, jails, institutions and death. Well, I'd gone to jail uh, in my youth, but it was nothing they could hold over me so that I couldn't get a job. But now I'm dying. Now I want to die. Now mind you, I beat cancer, but now I really wanna die. I really want this thing to happen for me. See, I didn't know to hold on that pain would end. I didn't know that back then. So every little thing that went wrong in my life seemed like it was the end of the world. It seemed like, you know, it, it, it's just horrible, you know? So I came out of the mental institution and got a good doctor, good uh, family practitioner, and, and he held my hand. He knew what I was going through. But he started prescribing me all these pills, all these mental health pills, all these psychotropic drugs. And uh, when I got out of the mental institution, I looked at my boss and I said, I can't do this job. And she said, I know it. You drink too much. So I quit my job, went and got another one, um, and moved, moved from Virginia to D.C. My daughter moved in with me and she was a party animal. So I continued to be a party animal. I was partying with my daughter. You know, how cool was that, right? And I was partying with my son and I thought, how cool is that? My house was the go-to place. Before everybody went out, they came to my house. And then, you know, and I served them up. And, uh, I look at it now, you know, I have a daughter that is an admitted alcoholic. I'm not breaking her anonymity. I have a son that's an admitted something else and I won't break his anonymity. But it is, uh, it's amazing because when I came <clears throat> from the DC area, when I, when I moved to the D.C. area, I blew my job up. Of course, I was going to blow it up. That's what that was my M.O. You know, God gives me something good. I got to mess this thing up some kind of way. I'll figure it out. And I figured out a way to mess that up. And they laid me off. And my husband got sick and um, couldn't work. 
So he had a daughter out in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and she said, come out here. So what do we do? We went out there. So I moved to, here's Lisa. I moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico. And um, once I got out there, I was drinking an astronomical amount. Like if I told you, you would not believe it. So I'll skip that part. But just know that I was drinking myself into bad health again. And something said, get a graduate degree. Well, I did that. I went and um, I got a master's degree. And then my mother decided that I should come home and take care of her. Now, this is a woman that I had grown to hate, hate. My sponsor can tell you that when she first met me, those are the words that I used to describe my feelings for my mother. I hated her. But there was something about me that said, come back, help your mother, you know, whatever, just do it. Because I was taught that that's what you did. You took care of the elders. It didn't matter. So I came back to, to um, take care of my mother. I left all my worldly possessions in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and came back here. And when I got here, she had not changed, and I had not either. So every day was a living hell. But because I had ruined everything in my path, I mean, I burnt all the bridges. Uh, when I came here, I really couldn't get a job. And then I had this one guy that, took, that, that really took pity on me and let me come work in his practice, and I started working in the field which I had gotten my degrees in. But I was a drinker. I was a drinker. My mom, you know, I used my mom a lot to drink. You know, I used her as an excuse. Mom isn't, you know, doing this, she's doing that, she's doing this, she's doing that, so let me drink, 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 drink. And of course, I lost that job. I lost it. I was still messing around with the little white powder and I was stealing money out of the petty cash. Out of the petty cash. Now here's the stupid part about it. I didn't put the money back. I was too drunk and too out of thing. Okay, when you get paid, put the money back. Well, on everybody's birthday, they had a big office party. Well, on my birthday, they went to the petty cash it was gone and it was my birthday. They went to the petty cash to get the money out for my birthday party. I got fired on my birthday for stealing money from the company. I'd finally been working in my field and it was, it was gone again. So now I'm living in my mother's house. I'm taking care of my mother. I hated my mother and now I have no job. And now they're telling people that I'm a thief, that I'm a thief, you know, and uh, I live with that. So I went, got a job working on the telephones. I thought, hey, I can do that. So I got this job working on the telephones only to find out that I had cancer again. I was like, what on earth? I have cancer again? It's like every time I go to school, I get canceled. Like, what is going on? Well, I had cancer. It came back, and it was a very aggressive form that uh, primarily stalks African-American women. Um, and uh, 
the chemo they were giving me was killing me, so they stopped my chemo. And then I was scared because if you stop my chemo, I'm surely going to die. And the guy was like, no, if we keep this aggression up, you're surely going to die. So long story short, um, I got over the cancer. But I remember asking the doctor, I said, you know, I smoke cigarettes. Is it the cigarettes that's giving me breast cancer? He said, no, it's the drinking. I was like, drinking? I didn't even know that drinking was associated, heavy drinking was associated with breast cancer in women. Had no clue. Well, you know, I, I, I beat that, but I drank through it. Even after he said that the drinking was causing the recurrence of the breast cancer, I drank my way through it. I went down to the place where I was having treatments and offered other people drinks. My room was the place to go to when you needed a drink after chemo. Have I lost my mind? Yes. Step two tells me I've lost my mind. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, something's got to change. Something's got to change. Well, it did. I came to the rooms of another program and something did change. I started wanting not to drink. Like, and I'm getting ahead of myself because I actually went to treatment. I went to treatment. And once I went to treatment, that's when the desire to drink left me. I'll be honest, it happened in treatment. I was in treatment and I knew that I never wanted to drink again. And when I came out, I didn't want to drink. I didn't have a desire for the taste of alcohol at all. But the moment I got in the car, my significant other handed me an outside issue. It was like, you want to smoke this? Are you crazy? And so I came home and I was like, oh my God, I have this other outside issue to deal with. But at the time, I didn't understand that addiction and alcoholism and addiction and alcoholism is the same thing. See, it's a desire for more. You know, one is too many and a thousand is never enough. And so I was relying very heavily on my significant other to work my program for me. Damn it, I'm clean and sober. You get clean and sober because I need you to help me stay clean and sober. It didn't work that way. It did not work that way. It ain't working that way today. And, um, but I did come into the rooms. I've been in the rooms before, truthfully. Um, I had a eight year period of not drinking. It was not sobriety before. Um, and then I learned that I had to allow my higher power to change me. The steps didn't even really man up, even I didn't really think about doing the steps until I walked into the Zoom. That's when I thought about doing the steps because see in this other program, it was like feel good. And for me, that was making me even sicker. I hated everybody. I was getting ready. And when I left that, I blew that up too, just like I do everything else. When I left that other program, it was chaos and massive destruction. But I came into the Zoom, man. I came into AA. Y'all told me to get somewhere and sit down and shut up. 
get a sponsor, they said. Read that big book, they said. Do what your sponsor tells you to do, they said. They said, get some phone numbers, they said. They said, read that big book. They said, go to a bunch of meetings, many as you can stand. And then when you learn just a little bit, just a little bit of something, help somebody else. And all that little bit that you need to learn is don't drink. Don't drink no matter what. Try that. Shit, try that shit, you know? And I was like, okay, all right. So if I don't drink no matter what, I don't do the outside issue no matter what either. Because why? It's the same principles for me. And then I realized that even after the drink, there's life. I said that to somebody yesterday. Okay, so we don't drink no more. What's next? Life. Life is next. Life is next. Life is working those steps, those 12 steps. Somebody asked me the other day, they said, what am I going to do about this problem? I said, you're going to work steps one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, and then work 12. Because that's the only way I get through life every day. I don't want to die today. Today is all about living, and it is living a happy, joyous, and free life, no matter what comes up. Now, that's hard to do, but I tell you, it's worth trying, because I tell you what, if you aim real high for 100%, you can do it about 90% of the time, and man, that makes for a great life. It makes for a great life, and now I've got these people that I'm working with, and I'm telling them my life story. They're telling me their life story. We're going through the book together. We're working the steps together. And my life is working out. And somehow I managed not to blow shit up. You know, I'm still in good relations with the people that I met when I came in here. Like, wow, wow. And then the people that I didn't like, I'm learning to like them. Get the heck out of here, man. I can't believe this. Like, I am in awe of this program. And, you know, I wanted to share this with you. I've talked to my sponsor about it before I shared it with anybody. You heard my story about the schooling and the things that went wrong and me blowing things up. Recently, I was accepted as a research fellow at the local university here. On the night, I actually get to teach two college courses while I worked on my doctoral degree in the fall. Um, my higher power is good. He has given me not a second chance, not third chance, not a fourth chance. Man, he's, I don't know. I don't even think he keeps track. He just keeps giving me chances. I've had fear about destroying this one. But man, I tell you what, you people, you people, as they say, you people have shown me how to give things to my higher power, how not to rely on myself that it is my higher power that does everything for me. It is my higher power that gave me this opportunity. 
It is my higher power whom I must rely on every second of the day. Because why? I can still get crazy and blow stuff up. But if I stick with y'all, and I'm sticking with y'all, as a sister here told me to stick and stay, and I'm stuck to her like glue, I'm stuck to this program like glue, and I ain't going nowhere. I've been real busy the last couple of weeks, but I ain't too busy for this, man. From six to nine, you can find me right here, somewhere in one of these rooms. I'm still talking to my sponsor. I'm doing my 10th step. I ain't doing it like at night, but you know, it's progress, not perfection. But um, my sponsor, my friend is in the room and I'm gonna end it here. I hope that something I said made sense. It is nothing like what I pictured I was gonna say on the eighth. All that stuff I had just lined up for the eight went right out the window because I prayed. Um, and this is how it came out. So folks, thanks for letting me share. I love everybody in this room. Y'all have shown me what love is. You listen, you observe, you validate me, you encourage me, and that's L-O-V-E. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for loving me. No, thank you, Doris D., for joining us on Two Sober Chicks and another edition of our podcast speakers series.